My dad, he's 80-something, and he almost never stands still. He's always, always moving. He's always doing something. On about eight, maybe seven or eight weekends a year, he paces back and forth in front of the television on a Saturday afternoon to watch his favorite football team. You probably know that he was born near Columbus, Ohio, right? But my dad has this ritual. Go ahead, you can boo. Get it out of your system. Yeah, that's all right. So my dad has this ritual. It's crazy. He's got this little ceramic thing. I don't know where he got it. It's a little ceramic. It has a little lid on it. And before the game starts, my dad will walk over to the television if we're all there, and he'll take that little ceramic thing. He'll take the lid off of it. This always, my wife always loves this. My wife hates Ohio State. So she will never call it Ohio State. She'll always say, is Ohio playing today? And then I will always say, I don't follow Ohio. I have no idea. We do that. We've, done that for, we've done that for years. It's like a sacred ritual. A stubborn little thing. And, uh, and so here's this little, uh, this little um, ceramic thing. And then my dad, he walks over ceremoniously, and he takes the lid off of it, and he puts it down like that. And inside is a buckeye. And he says, I've now uncovered the sacred buckeye. <laughs> And then we do what we do, which for 10 years was lose to Michigan, and for the last 10 or 15 years is, oh, well, but let's not talk about that. You'd rather talk about Michigan, right? My dad, my dad had this sacred ritual, and it's a joke, right? It's a joke. And, but, but my dad, I hope he gets raptured. I hope the Lord comes back before my dad uh, passes away. But if he were, it wouldn't really be funny anymore, would it? Somebody, one of the brothers would say, I get the sacred Buckeye. And then I would say, I'm the oldest son. It's mine. If you want to see it, you got to come over to my house. Because we would use that crazy little thing to remember somebody who gave us life and taught us stuff. I, I put on a Henley shirt. You have one of those? I put on a thermal Henley yesterday. They're great in the fall. I never put one on without thinking of Bing Henley. He was a Michigan fan. This dude was a serious Michigan fan. He had a van that was painted like a Wolverine helmet. In the van, he had cup holders that were lined with AstroTurf that used to be in the big house. He was a real Michigan fan. He had season tickets to the home games, and he and his wife would go over, and they would, they would tailgate. And, uh, and, and, the, and, and while we were there in Fremont, he, he took uh, our oldest two boys, uh, Kyle and Chuck, to a, a Michigan-Notre Dame, a big, big Michigan-Notre Dame game at the big house. It was a great, great time. And uh, his wife was named Judy, and Judy would, was, had a lot of hospitality, and she wanted to connect us. So she would, uh, they lived on the lake, and they would always invite our whole family over. And that's when we had a lot of kids at home. They would invite our whole family over to the lake, and they would feed us a big meal. I mean, not just a little order of pizza. I mean, they would make a big meal, and Bing and I would talk football. And this guy knew his football. He could tell you every down, every play, what happened on third and short in 1965. I mean, seriously, he knew that stuff. He had it on, back then he had videotapes. We'd go down in his den, and it was all maize and blue, man, down there. And we had the greatest times. And Bing came, and he heard me preach. Every message I preached in Fremont, I could look back there, and there would be Bing Henley, with that serious look on his face, listening to my messages, uh, his wife Judy passed away of cancer. I went back and I did her funeral. But whenever I put on a Henley shirt, I think I'm putting on a Bing Henley shirt today. That's what I think. Because it reminds me of him. And I 
sent a note to his, his, his daughter-in-law because he's not on Facebook and stuff. And I said, let Bing know I was thinking about him. It's just something you do when you remember people. The little girl, she's just four years old. She doesn't have much of a memory. But it's Thanksgiving time, and she's sitting at the, the Thanksgiving meal table. And all of a sudden, somebody puts some potatoes and she, on her plate, and she says, I want gravy on my potatoes. And somebody says, it's right there. But she doesn't recognize a gravy boat because they don't have that at Taco Bell, right? Somebody says, the gravy's in that thing. So the little four-year-old girl gets up on her chair. She reaches, and then mom says, let me help you with that. That's grandma's gravy boat. We've had that on the table at Thanksgiving time for 47 years. Let me help you with that. Whenever we put gravy on our potatoes from that, we remember a lady who gave us life. None of us would be here if that lady hadn't given us life. Careful now with that gravy boat. Am I right? Here's the beautiful thing about it. Jesus, who made us and knows what we're like, said, I want you to remember me, and I want you to do it around a meal. How sweet is that? I want you to remember me, and I want you to remember what I did for you. I want you to remember that I died for you and that I rose again and that I'm coming back. And I want you to think about it regularly. If you're my follower and if you want to walk with me, you need to repent and believe. If you're my follower and you want to walk with me, you need to be baptized. If you're my follower and you want to walk with me, you need to forgive your enemies. If you're my follower and you want to walk with me, then I want you to do this in remembrance of me. The older I get, the more I realize that was a really beautiful thing, a really, really beautiful idea. Now, the Bible talks about this communion. We call it, in our circles, we often call it communion, don't we? We sometimes call it the Lord's Supper. For centuries of time in the Christian church, they used the term Eucharist. We don't usually use that term so commonly in, in Baptist fellowships, but it's a good term. I'll explain that in a little bit. Sometimes people say, that the Lord's Supper and baptism are sacraments. Sometimes people will say that. Baptists don't generally say sacraments, and I'll explain that later, too. It wouldn't be entirely inappropriate under some definitions of the word, but to save confusion, that's not the way we usually refer to it. We're just obeying what Jesus said. We're followers of Jesus, and he said, one of the things I want you to do when you become my follower is I want you to do what faith and hope just did. And that is, I want you to be publicly baptized to identify with me in my death and burial and resurrection to show others that you have believed in me. And the other thing I want you to do is I want you to regularly gather with other people and I want you to have a simple meal that includes bread and juice and that will represent my broken body and my shed blood. Now that's in all of the Gospels. It's a beautiful passage in Matthew, a beautiful passage in Mark, a beautiful passage in Luke that describes what they would call the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Gospel of John includes five chapters of the upper room where this happened. This was actually originally a Passover meal, a Jewish Passover meal. And and you remember the Passover in the Old Testament was when God said he was going to judge those in Egypt who didn't put blood on the doorpost, shed a lamb's blood and put the lamb's blood on the doorpost. And if a lamb's blood was shed and put on the doorpost, then the death angel would pass over. And so everybody had to shed the blood of a lamb and put it on the, apply it to the doorpost and the death angel would pass over. Now Jesus is saying, I'm coming to fulfill this Passover 
And I am the Lamb. That's what John the Baptist said when Jesus came. Behold, the Lamb of God. He's the one who takes away the sins of the world. And so when Jesus changes the Passover, and it's a Passover meal, and from then on we're not doing a Passover meal, but we're doing the Lord's Supper named after him, or communion, or Eucharist. We'll explain why we say Eucharist in a minute. It's going to be important to the message. Now, what's interesting is in the Gospel of John, John leaves it to the other writers, the synoptics, they call them, Matthew, Mark, Luke. He leaves it to them to describe the Last Supper. In his five chapters of 21 chapters, five of them are about the upper room. He talks about other things like uh, when he washed the disciples' feet and what he taught them and his high priestly prayer and other things. But in John chapter 6, John says to a huge group of erstwhile followers, unless you... He says, I'm the bread of life, right? I'm the bread of life. This is shortly after he fed the 5,000 with bread that he created miraculously, went across the sea sea of uh, Tiberias to uh, Capernaum, and then in the synagogue he preached a message that morning that was, I am the bread of life. Not, I'm here to describe the bread of life. I'm here as a representative of the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. You get your life from me, not from God, I am God, he's saying. I am God. That's a, a, a tremendous a claim that Jesus is making. And in John chapter 6, in that passage, he has all these pa, pa, followers because in that area of the country he, where he'd done healing and exorcisms and so forth, he was extremely popular in the common person's mind. Then he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be my follower. And then the Bible says, ironically, in John 6, 66, It says, and from that time, many went on and didn't follow him anymore because he said that. They didn't get it. John got it. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and all of his followers got it. That Jesus said, unless you consider my death and burial and resurrection, your very lifeline, you aren't my follower. And he uses the symbols, eat and drink my flesh and blood. And this is what we're talking about here. Now the Apostle Paul, he said, I'm an apostle born out of due time. You remember the story of the Apostle Paul. He came along later and was converted on the road to Damascus. And he wrote beautifully about the Lord's Supper. That's going to be our text today. So take your Bible and look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And today, I'd like to take some truth out of 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's Supper. And hopefully, you'll never see it the same again. It'll never be a common thing to you. It'll never be a not special thing to you, if it ever has been. It'll never be a ritual to you. It'll never be something empty. You won't make it something more or something less than it really is. And hopefully just as a church, we'll just, we'll just deepen this and make this much, much more uh, significant. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 19, I'm about to go to 1 Corinthians, but in Luke 22, 19, it's where Jesus said, I want you to continue to do this in remembrance of me. And of course, in Acts chapter 2, and all through the book of Acts, is following the history of the, local, of, the, of the church, right? And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, you have a kind of succinct, you have a kind of a compressed description of what churches do. And it says, and this is what they did, they devoted themselves continually to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's what churches should do, right? They should continually addict themselves, devote themselves to teaching the message that the apostles gave. The apostolic teaching, which is like the teaching of the Bible, the Old Testament explained in the New, and the epistles and so forth. The church should addict itself, should devote itself to the teaching of the apostolic doctrine. And then in living that, in fellowship with one another, that's the second thing. And then in breaking of bread. And then in in prayer. 
These are just things that characterize Christian people. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is, uh, is teaching, but he's really teaching by virtue of correcting a mistake that the Corinthian church was making. And one thing that they had done is they'd gotten completely out of order in a lot of ways. One thing they had done is, is instead of coming together and having an orderly Lord's Supper that kind of commemorates and remembers Jesus and it's appropriate to the way Jesus lived and died, they would actually kind of start bringing their own stuff and just start eating before anybody else got there. And some of them actually, this is really a shocker, can you imagine? They actually got drunk. So um, this is why Paul is going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this passage that's about the Lord's Supper starts in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I don't commend you because when you came together, it's not for better but worse. For in the first place, when you came together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Now, there's a kind of a parenthetical, there's a parenthesis here. It's like, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Let me stop and just talk to you about divisions in the church. All churches have them because we have people. Families have them. All families have them. Don't freak, okay? But listen, when there are divisions in the church, we find out who the leaders really are. That's what it's saying right here. God providentially allows these things to come to see who the spiritual people are that are not going to gossip, not going to be hateful, not going to be mean. They're going to like, they're going to step up and be Jesus-like. Isn't that interesting? That's what he says. That's how you find out who the leaders are. When divisions come in the church, they don't gossip, they don't make it worse, they don't pour gas on the fire. There must be factions among you in order those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead on his own meal. He goes, you're not in the Lord's Supper, you're eating your supper. One goes hungry, another goes, gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? I do not commend you in this. <laughs> shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received of the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then Paul returns to his admonition, to his correction. And he's basically saying to them, You should be loving. You should live consistently with what Jesus did and be loving to one another and be orderly in the church. Verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for the one another. As everyone, anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. <laughs> so when you come together, you'll not be for judgment. And about the other things, when I, when I come, I'll talk to you. I have a few more things to talk about you, and we'll go over those when I get there. So what is he saying here? It's beautiful, really. It's direct. It's straightforward. It's loving. It's, and he's just saying to them, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and broke it and he, had a, he instituted the Lord's Supper and you're profaning it. You're not taking it as seriously and you're not living consistently with that. And there's a part here where it says, and by the way, I read that today in the ESV just to kind of jog your, just to jog your creative thinking a little bit, a little different version we normally use. But, but, but the reason that I, I say this is there's a passage here, in, in, I believe it's verse 27, uh, um, 
Verse 27, whoever therefore eats and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the blood of the Lord. Verse 28 is what I was looking for. Let a person examine himself and, and them let him eat. So let, let's just take that phrase right there and let's use this today as we approach the, approach the Lord's table and let's examine ourselves. And what would he want us to examine ourselves about? Certainly, in general, it's like, are we living consistently with the, with the cross of Christ, with the, with the life of Jesus and his death and burial and resurrection, and that we have identified with that and say that we're Jesus' people in general? But here's a way that I would like to give to you a simple thing you can remember that will help you when you come to church and you're going to take communion and you're preparing that week for the, always the first week of the month, usually in our church, uh, always in the morning except four times a year in the evening when we have our family meetings, always in the morning, that, that you prepare yourself. Here are three things to examine about yourself. And I'm going to base these on things people call what we do here. And again, let's go back in history to the early church fathers. The earliest church fathers called it Eucharist. Now, why do they say Eucharist? What does that mean? And the word just simply means giving thanks. And the reason they use that is because in the passage here in 1 Corinthians and in the descriptions in three of the Gospels, it says that Jesus, when he was given the bread, what did he do? That's interesting, isn't it? He gave thanks. Here's Jesus who owned everything, who made everything, who's the king of the whole universe, living in poverty, about to die, about to be betrayed. He's got a lot on his mind, and he stops, and he goes, wait a minute, look at this. We have bread here. Let's stop, and let's say thank you. The three things that we want you to see here today are Eucharist, we call it. We don't usually use that term, but it's an appropriate term. Giving thanks, Eucharist. Communion, we call it that. That comes out of 1 Corinthians 10. We'll read that in a minute. And in this passage, it's called, it's not your supper, it's what? It's the Lord's Supper. This isn't your meal, this is his meal. It's, it's for, for, and so in, in examining ourselves, maybe the first thing we can examine is, am I thankful, am I consistently thankful Followers of Jesus are consistently thankful people because he lives in us and he makes us grateful. This is a beautiful time of the year, isn't it? It's a time when we all lean toward thanksgiving, I hope. Especially people who have a life of God in them because Jesus, our Savior and our example, and the one who died on the cross, and before he died, he gave thanks for the simplest things. And we should have that spirit of thanksgiving as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 24, that's what it says. There's a little girl, some of you have read about her, and uh, she was raised on a farm in Canada. And when she was a little girl, she had a traumatic experience, a horrifying and traumatic experience. A delivery driver came to her house that one day, and her sister went out to play and got behind the truck, and the delivery driver backed over her sister, and she died right there in front of the whole family. Anne said that when that happened in her family, her whole family turned away from God. Her parents shut down because God had taken away from them or allowed to be taken away from them this gift of their daughter. Then the rest of the family said, that's all, that's it, no more. Dad didn't go to church. Mom didn't go to church. There was no talk of God in the home. She had an interest in the things of the Lord, this little Anne, and so some neighbors started taking her to church, and she became a follower of Jesus. But when she got older, she realized she had dark troubles in her heart, terrible depression she couldn't overcome. And she realized what it was, was that she'd never learned to just... She also, because her family had closed their hearts to God's good gifts, she had closed her heart to God's good gifts. And she began to realize if she could open her heart to God's good gifts again, 
and began to list things that, she, that, she, that were her favorite things, that were good things, she began to realize that she was making a journal of thanksgiving, and she said she decided she was going to list a thousand things to be grateful for. And Ann Voskamp, a far, so she's a farmer's wife up in Canada, has a blog, a beautiful blog, and, and she's written a book, A Thousand Gifts, and it's a New York Times bestseller because everybody needs to learn to be thankful. When we come to the Lord's table, let's come with a grateful, thankful heart. Let's come and say to God, God, you've been so good to me. I so love you so much. Wednesday night I came to church, and like you do, and it was so unusual. God has gifted us and blessed us with a lingering fall, hasn't he? And so who, who remembers the leaves, so many leaves, so many beautiful, colorful leaves still being on the trees in November, and yet here they are still holding on uh, and, and, and gracing our lives with beauty. And I came on Wednesday night, and because of the way the temperature worked, there was a beautiful kind of mist in the air. It was very unusual. And it was a mellow evening. It was very comfortable. And I, as I stood outside, I walked from the car. I was busy, so I was busy kind of all day. So when I was walking from the car to the church, I, I had this impression like, I don't even want to go. I mean, I want to be with God. But I don't even want to go inside. I want everybody to come outside and be out here. And so I just stopped, and I turned around, and I looked. You know, it's pretty common around here, right? This isn't like the, 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 you know, one of the 12 wonders of the world, but it's pretty, you know? And I looked around at the trees, and I smelled the air and the fresh air, and my heart was just overwhelmed with thanksgiving. I hope that you have the experience of having your heart overwhelmed with thanksgiving. Can I tell you, that's one of the reasons why you should never cut yourself off to God's good gifts. Because you need thanksgiving. You need to be grateful to God. You need to acknowledge that God is God and that he's gifted you. Never cut yourself off. Never be so hurt. Never be so guilty that you cut yourself off to being thankful. So our Savior, Jesus, was, was thankful, and, and I love that about him. Now, there's another thing that we call communion, and we call it communion. Communion. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is correcting the Corinthians about, just to be blunt, idolatry. In other words, he's saying to them, you're not being loyal to God. You're, you're being loyal to other gods. You're, you're, and, and in case you think, well, I'm not an idolater because I don't have any idols carved, you know, in my house. Well, think again because the Bible talks about immorality as idolatry. It talks about covetousness as idolatry. It talks about worry as idolatry. In other words, if I stood here long enough, I could hit all of us with, we're all idolaters at heart. We all give to something else what we ought to give to God. And that makes us, and so he's correcting them, and he uses communion as an example. And so this is in verse 14 of chapter 10. He says, flee from idolatry. I speak as sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, and the word blessing there in verse 16 is the koinonia word, often it's translated in some translations as communion, the participation. The, the cup of blessing that we bless is not the, the word, I'm sorry, the word participation is what I'm talking about. The cup of blessing we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ, and it's the word of participation that I was trying to describe that's often translated communion. And the bread that we break, is it not the communion or the participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons, not to God. Demons are behind false religion, you see. Verse 20, I do not want you to be participants with demons. 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and, and you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Get it? That's powerful. We could, we could study that. It's, it's rich, but just a simple insight from it. Communion is a reminder of our intimacy with Christ, our loyalty, our love and loyalty to Jesus, that he is our God, and our love and loyalty to those he loves and that he's made, especially his children. So when you come to the communion table, the first thing I want to suggest is that you examine, do I have a grateful heart? And when you come to the communion table, the second thing that I would suggest is that you examine and say, am I living in love and loyalty to God? And am I living in love and loyalty to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I? Because I cannot take the cup and I cannot take the bread and say that I'm a follower of Jesus and not live in love and loyalty to God and in love and loyalty to those that he loves because that would be entirely inconsistent. It's interesting that there, uh, there is in the Apostles' Creed this phrase. We don't often recite the Apostles' Creed, but Christians for centuries and centuries and centuries have recited the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and in the Apostles' Creed, one of the things that says we believe in, there's a phrase, the communion of the saints. Have you ever said the Apostles' Creed and wondered, what does that mean? Have you ever said the Apostles' Creed? And you believe in the communion of the saints. What is that? When, you, when a person affirms the Apostles' Creed, which Christians should all be able to do, actually, and say, we believe in the communion of the saints, that's a throwaway line for a lot of people. Like, what does that mean? The communion of the saints. What does that mean? There's a song that we sing. And I'm sure that Pastor Stephen will be able to tell me exactly what song this is I'm thinking of because it's not popping in my mind right now. But there's a phrase in it that says, In mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. The church is one foundation. Yes, you were there, weren't you? The church is one foundation. And there's a phrase that says, In mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Well, that's interesting. Here's what the scriptures are teaching. Because Jesus is our Savior, and we have that in common, we have a powerful union with everybody else who's, who's a Jesus follower. That would be everybody in this local church. We have a special connection with them. We cannot not love them. We cannot not forgive them. We cannot not befriend them. We've got to learn to appreciate them. We've got to learn to cherish them. We've got to learn to help them. We've got to, they're family. That's the deal. And not just in our local fellowship, but everybody in the world and every other part of the world who's a follower of Jesus. And not only that, but all those who've gone before us. I asked a pastor one day, do you feel like you ought to sing hymns in your church? And here's what he said. I don't think we should sing hymns. I don't, we, no, we, don't, we, we don't believe the Bible uh, commands that. And I go, I understand what you're saying. Now here's one of the reasons why we do sing hymns in our church as well as new songs. The reason we sing hymns is the same reason if you go in my study, you see thousands of books. Why is that? You go, well, pastor, you're a man of the book. You just have a Bible. That's all you need, right? Why would I have thousands of books? Why not just this book? Here's why. In mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one, we believe in the communion of the saints. God, through time, has gifted people to write books and songs. He's gifted them. They have been gifted by God. And we eat of the fruit of their gifts. The Lounsboros are here today, uh, Mark and, and Becky and, and Sarah and Daniel. And, and they're special to me every day because their son blesses me every day, every day, every day. And he blesses you at least every week, every week, every week. And it's because of them and that they live in Iowa you know, they can't get a job in Michigan, so they live in Iowa. You know, I get the, kidding. I was, like, I was trying to bless you there, and then I kind of blew it there, you know. 
and a blessing. That, so, that, so there are two, uh, there were young people when I met them, and I was young, and, and I was calling baptism and missions and saying, send me a good missionary, and they said, well, send you to Lounsboro's. And I hear, look at, look at the, raising their kids for the Lord, and he's a blessing to us and part of our life, man, a big part of our life, right, Katie? I mean, serious part of our life. And uh, he, he marries a girl in the church. Because of the gifts of the hymns or the songs or the, or the writings or the, the, the church has gone. So we have a respect for what's happened before us. Did you hear me? We have a respect for what's happened before us. We gather the best flowers and we make a bouquet from that. We also recognize that there are people who are gifted that they're just little or young. Maybe they're a little rough around the edges. They also have a gift. And we listen to them and we respect them. And, and we like, okay, 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 I'm hearing you. We're, 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 we're listening, right? Isn't that beautiful? Well, we could just go on and on. But that's the second thing. So we come to the table first. We say, do I have a grateful heart? Because it's a Eucharist. It's the giving of thanks, right? We come to the table. We also say, do I have a loyal heart to God you know, and to others? That's really super important. I have a friend. He's actually here in the room. And his, his dad died recently. And he said, I feel really bad right now because my dad would tell stories and he would repeat them. And like he basically said, I wish I could hear him again, but he suddenly died. And I told him, you know what that is. That's the way God made us. He wired our old guys to repeat stories so that we would pass our faith on through the generations and the young guys, you know, we just half listen. But then after Grandpa dies, we all, oh, remember how Grandpa would always say this? And God, who could ever forget it? He repeated it over and over again, right? That's the deal. And so it is here, you know, we, we have a respect for people who've gone before us. We have a respect for people who've lived the life for God and finished faithful. We have a deep respect for that. And also a respect for the weak ones and a respect for the young ones and respect for the women and respect for those that are white and those that are most of the world that's, that's not pale, right? We respect everybody. Um, and there we have the, the third thing then, and that is it's called the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, it says this. Listen to this. It's so beautiful. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. Um, we've read this over and over again, but it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you read those words, it feels like they have weight to them, doesn't it? Whenever you read those, like, what's that about? What is that about? Whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death as if it's important to proclaim the Lord's death, to say, Jesus died. This is what we believe. This is what this means. This is important to us. And in, in this meal, we come and we say, we're giving thanks. And in this meal, we come and we say, we're being loyal to Jesus and to Others, love and loyalty. And in this meal, we come and we say we recognize and we live in the shadow of the cross. We recognize the importance of the, what Jesus did on the cross is, is the heart of everything. Little Hope had it right in her little testimony where she said, I just want to be baptized to show I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's it, see? That's why we do this. That we're the people who believe the man who lived and died and rose again because he's God and God took upon, he took our sins upon himself. He became sin for us. And so we, we have this, we have, it's the Lord's Supper. Now, why don't we call it sacrament? That's a good, good question. Because sacrament, if you look it up in a secular dictionary, it will say it was a sacred rite instituted by Jesus 
and then it will say some churches believe it has saving merit, and other churches believe it's a memorial. And because of churches that imply that it has saving merit, we don't even use that term sacrament, but it is sacred to us. We don't use the term because we don't want any confusion. We're not saved by rights. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by righteousness. We're not saved by self-righteousness. We're saved by believing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross is where he paid for our sin. He rose again to prove that God took the payment on the cross for our sin. We're saved by grace through faith alone. That's what the Bible teaches. That's really cardinal. That's really key. And that's why we don't use the term sacrament, even though it really wouldn't be wrong to say that if we knew what we were talking about. But we do say the Lord's Supper because it's pointing to the cross. And that's why it's it's terribly important. I've often said it this way. We're living in the shadow of the cross. Think about that. Our prayers are from the cross. Our songs are about the cross. Our relief from guilt is by looking back to the cross. Our hope for the future is what Jesus did on the cross. Our daily cleansing is through the cross, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. We love the cross. We sing about the cross. We teach about the cross. We think about it all the time. It's not just something that helped us in the past. It's something that helps us every day. We live in the shadow of the cross. Not long ago, I have permission to tell you this, uh, not long ago I, I posted something on Facebook that was kind of a poke in the eye to legalists. Okay? It was like, so we do that every once in a while, right? It's a part of the teaching, right? Part of the teaching. It's like Paul says, I resisted them to their face. And so I put a little thing. It was a quote by Charles Swindoll. And the quote by Charles Swindoll was basically, he says, I'm 82 years old. I think he's older than that now or whatever he is. And he says, he looks younger, but he says, I'm old enough now that I'm not going to, I don't have time to tolerate legalism. Legalism is bad. Legalism is harmful. Legalism is damaging. And we, and I don't, and I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm going to resist them to their face. That's the way we should treat legalism. Self-righteousness is, is, it's like poison ivy. It'll get you even if it doesn't look like it can get you. You think, man, my dad says I can breathe that stuff. You actually can breathe fumes and get poison ivy in your lungs. It can be dead in the fall, and you can touch the roots of it, and you can get it. My dad says, if I look at it, I get it. I don't think that's the way that works, but that's what he says. Legalism is like that. It's poison, and we've all got to fight it off all the time. So I posted that, and a brother, uh, he, said, who, he wrote, and he says, you know, kind of like, I agree with that. You know, he's wrestling with that too. But he says, but it seems like holiness is an old-fashioned or outmoded. And he has a good point. His point was, well, what about holiness, you know? So the real question that comes to us is, okay, if we, if we aren't legalists, how can we make sure that we're holy? And so I suggested to him, hey, I've got a book that really helped me on this. And it was written by a guy who wrote a book on holiness. His name is Jerry Bridges. And his book he kind of got famous for was called The Pursuit of Holiness. And then the follow-up on that was The Pursuit of Godliness, or The Practice of Godliness, The Pursuit of Holiness, The Practice of Godliness, and then he wrote this little book called The Bookends of the Christian Life. And you've heard me talk about it before because it's a little book. It's very helpful. And my brother and I, we read that together. I actually gave him my copy, my little annotated version. And I said, I'll buy you another. You can read mine now. He read it. It was helpful to him, helpful to me as we kind of study that together and talk about that. Iron sharpens iron, you know. If the question is, wait a minute. If you don't have enough self-righteousness, we're not going to have holiness. The only problem is self-righteousness is a kind of sin. We have no amens on that? Yeah, it's true. It's true. I need to teach on this more. Self-righteousness is a kind of sin. Self-righteousness is a bad sin. Self-righteousness is a tricky sin. 
Self-righteousness is a repulsive sin. Self-righteousness is the kind of sin that keeps people from the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, it's demonic and it's bad and it's wrong. And self-righteousness is something that we should really be aware of. So how can we do that? How can we make sure that we don't have, that we don't cave in to licentious, sinful, wicked living or self-righteousness? What's the answer to that? It's the cross. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And that's why we come to the communion table. And that's why we celebrate it. And now maybe from now on when you celebrate it, you can remember Eucharist and communion and the Lord's Supper. Do I come with a thankful heart? Do I come with a loyal heart? And do I come in the shadow of the cross realizing the significance of the importance of the cross in every part of my life? We're going to pray right now. Pastor, thank you for coming and joining me. We're going to pray right now, and then we're going to distribute the bread. And you hold that. While we're distributing the bread, it's a time for you to examine yourself. And uh, it's a time, too, when you don't get right with the Lord by doing a bunch of good things. You get right with the Lord by being rightly related to the Lord in your heart. So that can be happened in an instant, right? That's why while these elements, the bread and the cup, are being distributed, you can get right with the Lord. You can be right with the Lord. And I would suggest you do that so you can partake of communion with us. If you know the Lord is your Savior, you live in our obedience to him. Father, this is just rich to, to think about, maybe a lot more than we realized growing up, how precious it is that you, you in your infinitely complex, wise mind, gave us such a simple way to remember you. And for your people to remember you and to be and have our feet held to the fire when we say we're followers of Jesus. Thank you for coming and living in this world and for dying and rising again. In Christ's name we pray.